But listen, you kid, don't get caught in the Canadian syndrome, where if it's Canadian, it's got to be bad. We're the best. I've been telling you the best. How about the guy that used to be on about four or five years ago? And you know those other... The amazing upper body strength of the Russians. So amazing. They're nothing. Just a minute. No, They're sorry. nothing. Turn in Calgary. T-H-I-N. Had a nothing. finish touch, but only one had a touching finish, and that was overseas, according to Don Cherry and the coaches. Canada. Canada. Wilson Hockey Night in Canada on CBC. Folks, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggle. Freeman and slave... Patrician and plebeian, lord and serf, guildmaster. Now, now, wait a minute. Don't interrupt me. Don't shut up. In a word, oppressor and oppressed stood in constant opposition to one another. That well, I, I, I'm sorry. I got that, uh, got that piece of food out of my throat. Welcome again to Michael and us. (laughs) I'm Will Sloan here, as always, with. I'm uh, Luke Savage, just uh, alluding off the top there to, you know, one of the formative influences of our show, Coach's Corner. <laughs> so, good to be back, huh? Yeah, I feel like it's been a while. This is the long-promised part two of the Michael and Us Canada 150 Spectacular, which we're sneaking in just under the wire. We promised part two a long time ago, and then we got distracted with I, stuff I, we were more interested I in. I think we sort of launched the concept and then failed to give it the reverence, which we maybe promised our listeners. So uh, we're, we're hoping to partly make amends here. So the movie, we, which we'll get to, the movie we watched today was the CBC-produced film the wrath of grapes the life of don cherry part two about uh the canadian public intellectual don cherry (laughs) uh before we get to that uh luke has a topic that i think he'd like i don't know i was just thinking i don't know about you but i get a little melancholy this time of the year and i like to and i like to uh I don't know, beat back some of the gloom by, you know, watching, uh, you know, some of the films from my childhood. And uh, I was thinking last night about how every 90s Christmas movie, it seems to me, and I'm not doing a bit here, like, I'm serious, (laughs) every 90s Christmas movie, it seems like was about a divorced dad or a dad who was kind of failing at the marriage, failing at being a father. And the kind of arc of the film was about his quest for redemption. I'm thinking Schwarzenegger and Jingle All the Way, I'm thinking Tim Allen and the Santa Claus. And this concept, by the way, extends, I, I think, to most kind of family comedies of the 90s. There's a lot of them, right? Like, like Liar Liar. Hook. Yeah. Mrs. Doubtfire. Even, even you know, the un- now I'm thinking about it, the kind of undercurrent, the subtext of the Home Alone franchise was that, like, the family was kind of dysfunctional and... Like, do you remember how he was kind of bullied by his family and by his parents in the first one? Yeah, and their their lives were just too hectic to even keep up with mm-hmm. young Kevin McAllister. Yeah, they ate his plain cheese pizza. It is interesting because the divorced dad trope doesn't appear in movies anymore, really. Do you have any theories for this? I, I'm going to throw out two. Okay. This was around the time when kind of um, family values rhetoric was at the top of everyone's mind Mm -hmm. because of what uh, 80s social conservatism you know this was a time when oftentimes both parents were working so social conservatives would fear that there's there was a breakdown in sort of Mm -hmm. the traditional Mm -hmm. structure of the family this was also a time though 
when the whole neo-masculinist movement was brewing. Stuff like... Did this, people call it that back then? Or I don't know what they called it, but, but the prime text of this movement was a book called Iron John, which I don't think most people really remember, but... Iron John was, I think, sort of the influence behind Fight Club. It mm. was this book that argued that, you know, there's the wussification of the American mm. male because of stuff like Ikea and uh, because of Ikea? yoga classes or, you know, whatever else. The is... social democratic shopping experience killed the American yeah, male folks. You know, you know, stuff that, and the solution to this is men have to, like, get out there and, you know, get into a forest. and Stop get eating, a, get stop eating lingonberries and eat some red meat. But yeah, a lot of concern that the social structure was keeping men down. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I I was kind of joking about this on Twitter and several people sent me some articles, which, you know, I thought I kind of thought this was like, I don't know if an original idea, but I, I, you know, like I didn't realize that it had been studied. Like there's articles about it, which I confess I have not yet read, but I'm interested in. And one of the things people were saying was that... uh, divorce rates actually went up Hmm. um and so the films were happening against the backdrop where the american family in particular was a little more kind of shaky and and um just thinking in terms of the law i mean i think i think in in canada i feel like you know i have to double check this but i think no fault divorce dates only from like the 80s and in the united states i think it might be later i'll have to double check that but I mean, I think it's a fact that the institution of no-fault divorce is actually relatively new, and so more people probably got divorces. Which, if you ask a movement conservative to diagnose kind of social problems, especially in the American context, what they'll respond to is like, there was this wave of, you know, rabble-inflected enthusiasms in the 60s, like the feminist movement, civil rights, these kind of things. And what they essentially did was undermine... The social order. Mm. And they kind of uh, achieved a bunch of, uh, you know, liberal reforms to divorce law, family law. Black people got the right to vote, and that somehow led to social fragmentation, apparently. And a lot of the problems that the Reagan administration said it was responding to, you know, like with the drug war and stuff like that. You know, a lot of movement conservatives would have said this started with this starts with the breakdown Mm. of like the family and particularly the patriarch at the top and kind of the decline of paternal authority. I also think there's an end of history dimension to this, too. Think of one of the last one of the real pre 9-11 movies, American Beauty. Right. Um, I haven't seen it since like the early 2000s. Well, that's a movie that is kind of set in this world where um, there are no more battles left to be won. And the upper middle class existence is kind of the default existence. And the big concern of that movie is, okay, now we've got all this stuff. We're successful, but there's a just a spiritual rot at the core of our lives. And this this doesn't seem to be, a, you know, a popular concern anymore. <laughs> But like that spiritual rot of, you know, being affluent and uh, having nothing to say, worry the, about. The spiritual lethargy of the American bourgeoisie does not rank high on my list of political or social no. concerns. But, but it was a pressing concern a at thing. the time. Yeah. I mean, just watch American Beauty and you'll be transported back to that uh, mm-hmm. that magical time. Well, uh, are you going to watch any Christmas movies in the next well, week or well, so? Well, for my other podcast, I just watched Ernest Saves Christmas. 
And what did that tell you about atomization and atrophy in American life? You know what? I'm going to let our <laughs> listeners tune into that one. I, the important cinema I'm club, not, folks. Check it out. So uh, what's been in the news lately? We like to take a sideways glance at the headlines. Yeah, we'll, we'll just do our weekly, you know, fist bump of the events of the day. Well, I guess the big thing that happened that, you know, we got we to gotta drop in some American content before we, <laughs> before we, we, uh, we uh, return home here to Canada. But um. I mean, I guess the, the biggest thing was the Senate election in Alabama, which Democrat Doug Jones kind of defied predictions to win. And uh, and good. And yeah, I mean, I'm basically kind of I was happy that I mean, I wanted him to win, although yeah. I, I got in trouble for basically challenging the idea that Doug Jones or any Democrat is just kind of entitled to people's votes. And, uh, you know, Doug Jones ran a strange ad that sort of praised the valor of, you know, Confederate soldiers. And he's not particularly progressive on you know he i don't think he supports medicare for all and uh some people were pretty mad about that and um you know they sure proved me wrong when uh doug jones won um although today i see that uh you know doug jones um you know he's now uh, talking about you know we gotta have bipartisanship i might vote with the republicans he says he wouldn't he doesn't know how he'd vote on the republican tax bill and he thinks it's time for the nation to move on from the president's sexual assault allegations and and move on to more serious issues hashtag resist he clearly feels a little bit under pressure because he's in a deeply red state that is definitely going to vote for the next republican that comes along so i mean why not like do some fucking good while you're at it then. And I mean, uh, Northam, who is elected governor, uh, Democratic governor in Virginia, is now also talking about how he wants to, you know, work with the diminished Republican House to uh, cut medic Medicaid spending, yeah. you know? Hashtag resist. Well, it's kind of like what Chuck Schumer said after the tax bill passed, where he said his biggest regret was that there wasn't a bipartisan solution. And, and, and then time the, and time again, we've reached across the aisle. And then the Senate Democrat like official account tweeted out like Ronald Reagan in the 80s. <laughs> yeah. What if it was like, what if it was like this? I mean, sure. I'm not saying that, you know, an our revolution style candidate would just hands down win in a landslide and it's that easy. But I mean, what what is the point of politics? I mean, if you're going to get a Democrat, great, you didn't get the pedophile. But mm -hmm. is that is that now the barometer for decency and success in politics? If this is supposed to be part of the resistance, I mean, if you don't support Medicare for all and uh, mm -hmm. you're talking about bipartisanship with the most right wing Congress in recent history, like what exactly are you resisting? And I guess the reason I wanted to bring this up is because I actually think it touches on something which is sort of part of the deep structure of our show and kind of a, a narrative that we've touched on a lot um, because what it got me thinking about was how one of the dominant narratives of the Obama presidency was that, you know, Obama wanted to do good things, but he was kind of constrained by political circumstance. And I think that one of the most important tasks for Americans in particular, uh, progressive liberals and leftists thinking about uh, where to go from here is to understand that that narrative is is actually incorrect in a, in a really big way. Apart from, you know, appointing a whole bunch of, you know, Wall Street aligned people, you know, with all the political capital he had at the height of the Great Recession, the way he decided to, he had, he had wide discretion mm -hmm. to, to act there, and, uh, and he didn't. But beyond that, I recalled this op-ed that I found recently when I was doing some research. It's from March 5th, 2009, so not long after Obama took office. It's by one of America's greatest scribes, uh, 
the right and honorable David Brooks. Mm. And, you know, I think it's an interesting document. The previous week or earlier in the same week, Brooks had written a column where he was saying that the Obama budget, which had just been introduced, was an example of liberal, you know, big government politics that was back. And he said it should make moderates nervous. Brooks writes... The column generated a large positive response from moderate Obama supporters who were anxious about where the administration is headed. It was not so popular inside the White House. Within a day, I had conversations with four senior members of the administration, and in the interest of fairness, I thought I shared their arguments with you today. In the first place, they do not see themselves as a group of liberal crusaders. They see themselves as pragmatists who inherited a government and an economy that had been thrown out of whack. They're not engaged in an ideological project to overturn the Reagan revolution, a fight that was over long ago. They're trying to restore balance, nurture an economy so that productivity gains are shared by the middle class, and correct the irresponsible habits that developed during the Bush era. Uh, that the budget they continue isn't some grand transformation of America. It raises taxes on energy and offsets them with tax cuts for the middle class. It raises taxes on the rich to a level slightly above where they were in the Clinton years and then uses the money as a down payment on health care reform. Uh, that's what the budget does. It's not the Russian Revolution. Second, they argue, the Obama administration will not usher in an era of big government. Blah, 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 blah. The, he goes on to say that, and this is my favorite part, uh, he, meaning Obama, is extremely italicized, committed to entitlement reform, and is plotting politically feasible ways to reduce Social Security as well as health care spending. Okay, so this is the early days of the Obama presidency. He has, uh, like, a approval ratings through the roof. He has come to office at the height of the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. People are like hurting really, really badly. You and I are both in university and we're in Canada. And I mean, people really did think stuff was going to change, right? And it was a priority in the early weeks of the Obama presidency to reassure David Brooks that don't worry, we're going to cut healthcare and social security. I'm trying to remember and, what exactly I expected from the Obama presidency, because I, I feel like our political imaginations were pretty limited at the time. I yeah. mean, but well, adults, well, adults bought into it too, right? Yeah, they bought into like hope and change. But I think uh, most of us, if we'd been asked, would have been like, oh, well, uh, glad it's not the Russian revolution. I mean, let's not, let's not get crazy. Well, here. you, you and I might have had different politics yeah. then. But, <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, but, but I mean, that would have been, I think, pretty mainstream among Democrats, right? You know, like, I think a lot of people thought this is a new liberal renaissance. You know, I remember an, an article in the Globe and Mail that argued that from now on, American politics was going to be built around a completely different consensus. And Republicans were going to have to fight, like if they wanted to compete, they would have to like have small government solutions to climate change or something like that. Like there was going to be a new co consensus they would have to work within that uh, they were going to be shot out of Congress. It was that said, I also think one of the appeals of Obama in that early days was the idea of bipartisanship. I mean, the Bush presidency had been so divisive mm -hmm. and we all liked the idea. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe not all of mm -hmm. us, but a lot of us liked the idea of this guy who was going to reach across the aisle and was going to get get compromised. I know you, you're disgusted by well, a lot of this, but it was a big appeal of him. I mean, I think it would be incorrect to say anything other than that the central appeal of the Obama presidency was going to be it was going to be consider change. considerable reform and change and, yeah. and here and here it is in the first like in the first weeks of the presidency mm -hmm. not even a hundred days in and they're reassuring David Brooks you know they're actually going to cut yeah. things they're going to have you know entitlement reform uh, don't worry we fully accept like everything Ronald Reagan did and I think this is the important point here is that so often, 
the Democrats don't actually offer any kind of ideological challenge. Mm -hmm. Whereas, uh, for reasons I don't fully understand, in the Republican Party, the pressure always continues to push everything to the right. And in the Democratic Party, the party elites are just obsessed with pulling everything towards the center and managing their own base and telling them, no, you have to go out. Like, you know, you should be happy, like, that we elected Doug Jones. That's the best Mm -hmm. you're ever going to get, you know? I don't know. I think it's just, it's important to understand that, like, change isn't impossible, but it is impossible when, you know, the people who promise it don't even try. Anyway, let's turn to a less, uh, less, less heady topics here. What did we talk about this week? Well, listen, folks, we're in the waning days of Canada 150, uh, this Canada's sesquicentennial sort of came and went without much like this is I think what's been great because if Canada 150 had happened 10 years ago Mm -hmm. in fact I believe it was Canada 140 10 years ago there would have been a lot more fanfare I Mm. think you think so stuff like social media has made it more possible for people to build support around the idea that Canada is a nation founded on Mm. indigenous genocide Um, but for the most part, it's been a very glum Canada mm. 150, I think. It's funny because certainly the national mood um, in the wake of the 2015 election, I mean, excluding me and whatever, you know, it was, but it was certainly, it was very positive And there have been attempts by some writers to write the kind of Canada as a global exception and, and to really sort of own that. And I mean, on the you know international commentators sort of embrace that as well. But I mean, I guess just institutionally, even though there have been set like formal celebrations, I don't feel like they've really caught on in a big way. Well, I mean, a lot of people like Justin Trudeau, but I think like one of his appeals is that he's a redemption narrative for Canada. I mean, you know, he comes after Canada is back. Yeah, he comes after he comes after years of Harper. And also he's the Canadian prime minister who will apologize for things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's, he's the guy who's going to usher Except us into breaking a his age. election promises. Yeah. Am I right, folks? He, he's the guy who's going to apologize for indigenous genocide. Uh-huh. So and then and then fight uh, indigenous kids in court and all yeah, the rest of so it. Yeah, like, so like people will be proud of Canada 150, <laughs> but only in the context of it's an opportunity for us to acknowledge all the bad things we did in the past. Right. And also not do anything to right. make things better going forward. And I guess that's kind of one of the reasons we wanted to do this is because it speaks to this very kind of particular, I guess, Canadian cultural pathology. Mm-hmm. It's a strange kind of cultural and national hubris where we celebrate ourselves but what we're celebrating is our own kind of meekness and how we you know apologize and we're gentler and we're kinder Mm -hmm. um you know i i wrote about this in open canada you can find my essay there back earlier this year and i find there's something uniquely kind of insidious about that as a mindset because i think that it really uh blunts cultural criticism in a way which frankly you don't have in the united states i mean i was raised in Canada to sort of think that the United States was an inherently reactionary place. Mm-hmm. And it's true that, you know, I think they have a, a caliber of reactionary there, which has never kind of, that's never kind of successfully caught on here. Um, but at the same time, I think that, um, you know, by the same token, kind of on the other side, like I think often dissenting cultural critique has been kind of sharper. Well, when I was growing up, like, in the late 90s, we definitely were taught that we were a progressive, welcoming, diverse nation. I remember mm, in a grade, modern and progressive burger company. Yeah, I remember in grade six, you know, doing a unit on in one of our classes about Canada's refugee policy. Yeah. But uh, but there's another side of Canada, mm-hmm. a side of Canada represented by people like Rob Ford. Yeah, by people like one Mr. Donald Cherry, <laughs> the subject of tonight's film. Iraq, no, Let's get that no, straight. No, that's yes, ridiculous. Yes, sir, we're talking about a nation 
who has come to our rescue so many times, and when they need us, we're not there. But is that any reason to sell our soul? We're not selling our soul. We may be. We did a, we did a coach's corner right after the... Uh, George Bush made the decision to go into a Iraq with Operation uh, Iraqi Freedom. In my head, I was really hot to trot on this subject, you know, that it's wrong. Chrétien has decided not to go. I'm with him and Don's, of course, with the Americans, and we do the six combustible minutes. It got so many hits down in the States because it was finally somebody sticking uh, up for an American. Ron, you got to move on. It's got to be now. What, what if it's the wrong thing to do? But the people who think it is, like you, are the ones walking around the streets no, waving their no, signs. No, wait a minute, People always think, he shoots from the hip. If I get in a mood, look out. I remember the guys hollered, I could hear it. Stop it, get off it, get off it. For us as actors, I mean, uh, uh, it, was a great, uh, it was a great challenge and a great scene to, to play. You know? I, I was saying to the guys before that uh, the first time we saddled up to, uh, to reenact an episode of Coach's Corner, we shared this look that, you know, this could go very, very badly for both of us, you know. <laughs> These guys are a Canadian institution. Uh, the people love them, and they're going to hate us if we screw it up. Now, we're going to have to explain Don Cherry, because I feel like to non-Canadian listeners, which frankly is probably the bulk of our listenership, we're probably going to have to, you know, explain kind of who Don Cherry is and what the institution of Don Cherry so, is. So, this is a funny fact. In the early 2000s, I think like 2003, the CBC, Canada's national broadcaster, did a survey and, and a number of TV specials to determine the greatest Canadian of all time. And they had a top 100 list and they had a top 10 list that people voted on. And each person in the top 10 list, including people like Terry Fox and the eventual winner, Tommy Douglas. Yeah, the, the man, socialist one, folks. Yeah, the socialist one, the man who uh, created our universal healthcare system. He was voted the number one Canadian. But one of the 10 Canadians was Don Cherry. And Don Cherry is best known these days for hosting a segment on Hockey Night in Canada, which is the number one show in Canada. It's a segment called Coach's Corner. Is it the number one show in Canada? I suppose it certainly it was, was yeah. for many years. Yeah. Probably still is. Mm -hmm. but. I used to watch it, you know, from age, I guess, I want to say eight or nine till 13 or 14, mm -hmm. maybe a little less time. I played hockey and um, I was rural growing up, so... You know, it should have been, I guess, prime cherry country, but certainly hockey was everywhere. I actually don't remember Don Cherry being somebody that people talked about a lot, but I used to watch Coach's Corner every night because I would, usually I would have a game or a practice, my brother would have a game or a practice, and I'd come home and uh, I'd watch Hockey Night in Canada and, you know, usually two games. So Don Cherry was a former coach of the Boston Bruins. He was a player in the Boston Bruins for one game. Yeah, played uh, in the AHL, I guess, for much of the rest of his career, right? Yeah, and in the AHL, he had a reputation as being a very violent... Like an enforcer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just a real piece of shit. Mm -hmm. And then he's a he's a real, a real proud Canadian guy, so he parlayed that into a career as a TV sports commentator and coach's corner... Um, pairs him with this uh, meek sort of the, the the sort of the straight man is this fellow named Ron McLean who's kind of I suppose in a way the audience surrogate he's more mm -hmm. sympathetic and he's you know and and the shtick is that John Cherry kind of talks over him um, and I mean this is I guess this kind of started organically but it's just become the show and I mean the, the thing about Don Cherry is that he offers this particular kind of wisdom about hockey that it's very I don't really know how to describe it. I mean, there's no real insight to it. No. He, he talks about, you know, 
this kid is good and like he's he, a good Canadian boy. Yeah, and he sort of some somewhat arbitrarily kind of identifies like he'll sometimes he'll praise somebody like celebrating a goal and then other times he'll condemn it as showboating or something. He, he's very xenophobic, so for years he would rail against Russian players. Yeah, he talks about he sort of implies that there's like styles of hockey and like various degrees of honor linked to kind of certain cultures and stuff like that it's it's definitely sort of a conservative streak of canadian nationalism and the battles that he fights are pretty reactionary he was against making the players wear helmets yeah because i tell you you put helmets on these kids and they're gonna <laughs> lose their respect for the head yeah. and then you're gonna you're gonna get more concussions mm-hmm. take it from me i told you more concussions <laughs> you know because I mean, when he was playing hockey they didn't even acknowledge they had concussions your, your john cherry impression is pretty grating but it, it honestly might be better than the actor <laughs> that played him in this film um i mean so we watched this biopic and and i'll get to more details about cherry as we discuss the film if you can call it that so th- the cbc made two uh biographical films about don cherry the first one covered his life as a player and a coach and this second one the the wrath of grapes because his nickname is grapes mm-hmm. i learned that today yeah um it, it covers more his time as a tv personality and an increasingly political controversial tv personality and it's funny because i think the film is supposed to be sympathetic to him i think so and yeah. it's not like there's nothing sympathetic about him i mean he like even on its own terms you kept asking like what are the stakes here and and it's a good <laughs> question because the film is just a series of moments where he annoys the, you know, elite CBC executives, these beta male, uh, wine drinking, quite literally, there's a scene where he's like, I'm drink, I got the beer and, and you got the wine, you know, what does that say? Or <laughs> something like that. Yeah, he'll make some reactionary stance on TV, you know, yeah. like, they're putting skirts on players. And, some, and sometimes it's not even like a political stance, sometimes he's just an asshole, like when he threatens to punch that guy, <laughs> like, there's no kind of rhyme or reason to it, it's just him being kind of a, a jerk. And it'll cut back to flashbacks to his early hockey career. Which, like, we didn't watch the first like three hours of this we watched the the last hour and a half the kind of yeah. you know part two of this of of series two or whatever <laughs> but like why was it going back to the flashbacks if that was already explored in the well i was trying to figure out what about these flashbacks illustrate the way that he is now and it seems to be he's just violent he's just always been violent well and... it seems to be kind of like mike tyson and customato right like mm-hmm. it's like he had this real hard-ass trainer who mm-hmm you know, made him skate backwards right. on the ice for a day. But and... he does a sensitive side, right? We see him, um, there's a, a kid that the other team members have been bullying oh. and then he like forces them to like buy the kid a coat with the team logo on it because, you know, we don't Unbearable. do bullying right now. We, we don't do bullying, but then, you know, 20 minutes later, after he gets in a fight with a guy and they're both bloody, they're sitting on the bench in the penalty box and the guy says, like, that was a cheap shot, you know, and then Cherry just fucking smokes him in the face. That's assault. And that's just assault. He should and it's be like, in prison. Yeah. <laughs> so he plays the one game for the Boston Bruins and then he's back to the AHL and because his his career as a hockey player, this is in the flashbacks, remember, because his career as a hockey player is going nowhere, he just decides to be the worst person on the ice, just, just beating people yeah. up senselessly to feel something, I guess. Mm. Um, and then there's... Somehow, even though this country is controlled by these, uh, you know, Frenchy elites at the CBC, <laughs> uh, somehow he never, like, 
you know, and the, and the conservatives are a, a, a repressed, you know, cultural minority. Somehow he never gets fired. He just stays yeah. on TV. But but there's the moment in the flashback when he finally gets a crisis of conscience when he punches another player in the face and the other player is bloody, his teeth falling out on the ice. And on the narration, Cherry goes, uh, for some reason after that, the game was just never the same. <laughs> and then he, and but then instead of, you know, do, doing the honorable thing, which would be to retire from public life and go live on a mountain and pray for redemption, he instead decides to go on TV where he can do even more damage and advocate for Canada to enter the Iraq war. Yeah, so that happens kind of that happened in 2003. It's a it's a it's a real it's a real thing that happened. A whole segment of Coach's Corner, no talking about hockey. Um, now this I think was a real turning point in Don Cherry's reputation because if you live in Canada, Don Cherry is unavoidable. Yeah. And he's unavoidable in a really insidious way. If you if you're raised in Canada, it's like you're almost taught from an early age that he is an avatar of a certain kind of Canadianness. And you know? and I want to make a comment on that because like I said, I grew up in rural Ontario and I and I guess yeah, you're sort of taught that he's in some way, I guess, the voice of... Like, and one, th- one of the things they do in Hockey Night in Canada is they will cut to, like, local, small arenas and small towns where the, you know, the kids are watching the game or the kids are playing. You know, one of the kids will skate up the camera and say, you're watching, you know, Hockey Night in Canada or something mm-hmm. like that. All of it's saturated with, like, ads for Tim Hortons and stuff. But I have, you know, two points to make. I guess one's kind of anecdotal. I'm about as rural as you can, as, as, I don't know, as you can grow up in Canada, I guess, you know, unless you, I, I mean, I, I guess the North is more rural, but you know, pretty rural yeah. Ontario. I'm a big city boy, you know, yeah. kind of a huckster. You're from Rob Ford country. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, uh, you know, people love talkie, but I don't, and I mean, I love talkie, but I don't really remember Don Cherry having a huge fan base. I think he was pretty fondly regarded on my schoolyard. Well, this is where I'm going because, mm. and this is the less anecdotal point, which I think Don Cherry's politics are actually much more in line with kind of suburban Canada. Mm. You know, and this was something too during the, the near decade of Harper is like, I actually think in a big way that's, you know, politics that come out of suburbia. I mean, it's true the conservatives had a ton of rural seats and stuff like that, but I just think the thing about Don Cherry, right, is like Rob Ford, he's this you know, supposed populist who rails against uh, elites, even though, you know, he collects a paycheck from a publicly owned broadcaster and stuff. He positions himself as this kind of populist figure, but he's absolutely like he's he's culturally blue collar in the sense that Rob Ford is, but he's a millionaire, you know, mm-hmm. and um, I guess we'll, we'll play the we'll play the clip. But, you know, it was Don Cherry that inaugurated Rob Ford when he became mayor in 2010. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, let's listen in. Well, actually, I'm wearing pinko for all the pinkos out there that ride bicycles and everything. I thought I'd get it in. Um, would you expect Ron McLean here to come here? But, um, you know, I, I have to, I, I am befuddled because I thought I was just doing a good thing coming down with Ron and Rob, and I was going to do this here, and it was going to be nice and the whole deal. I've been being ripped to shreds uh, by the left-wing pinko newspapers out there. It's unbelievable. Um, one guy called me a pink, uh, a jerk in a pink suit, so I thought I'd wear that for him, too, today. Uh, you know, it's funny, uh, uh, in, that, in those articles, my church was, I was uh, made fun of because I go to church. I'm, I'm easy to do it that way. Uh, I was called modeling for, for the troops because I honor the troops. This is a kind of, uh, you're going to be facing, Rob, with these left-wing pinkos. They scrape the bottom of the barrel. But again, I was asked why I was asked. And I asked Doug, why? 
And they said, we need a famous, good-looking guy. And I said, I'm your man, right right off the bat. Yeah, I remember when that happened, and there was just a general feeling of like, oh, man, these next four years are going to be brutal, you know? And he, he did ads for, I think, Julian Fantino when he was running, <laughs> former police chief. Um, Very corrupt. Yeah, who, well, after, after um, he's recently, he's now cashing in, he's going into the marijuana business, despite, as a cop, <laughs> long-time... Uh, you know, opposing marijuana Wait, legalization how, how is stuff. he going into the marijuana? How is he cashing in? Uh, from November 15th this year on the CBC, Julian Fantino, who once compared weed to murder, defends opening medical marijuana business. Um, the Tor- former Toronto police chief and politician who once compared legalizing weed to legalizing murder is defending his decision to open a company connecting patients with medical marijuana. So he, um, he with the help of Don Cherry, who did robocalls for him, became a... Uh, a conservative MP in sort of the North GTA, and uh, I think was Associate Minister of Defense, which, as far as I can tell, was maybe I think he was maybe the first person to have the title. And um, I think this might have been uh, the interview where he might have hung up, where he, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I don't think it went very well. Uh, Carol Off did uh, did her best to ask about, uh, isn't it a little bit you know mm-hmm. hypocritical? But um, Hi, it's Don Cherry. As you know, my good friend Julian Fantino is running in this election. There is not enough words to describe how much respect I have for Julian Fantino. He is honest, experienced, and he's always there for the little guy. I know he would make an excellent member of Parliament. Thanks. I guess he was always a conservative figure, but the Iraq War thing, him going on Hockey Night in Canada and advocating for the Iraq War... For great reasons, by the way. He was like, <laughs> hey, America's our pal. If your pal's in a bar fight, you help him in the fight. That, I think, is when he became a more divisive figure. I remember uh, watching, that's like stirred a, an odd memory, which is I remember watching a, an all-candidates debate, I guess, during the 2004 federal election, way back. It was in Stratford, where I was at high school at the time. And, um, you know, some question came up about the Iraq War. And the conservative candidate, later the MP, basically said that uh, his anecdote that is illustrating why we should have gone into Iraq was that uh, he had a buddy who, um, you know, tried to buy some fishing lures down in Michigan and they wouldn't sell them to them because uh, he was Canadian. Oh, damn. <laughs> and, you know, Canada was too tainted with the dishonor of... Uh... Anyway, as you were saying, well, you know, history did vindicate Don Cherry. The Iraq War was a great success. That's what's so funny Nobody about died. this scene, because this scene is playing, and normally this is the part in the biopic when, you know, the hero does some principled but lonely stance and is later vindicated. And he's not even vindicated. No. Um, getting back to what the stakes of this movie are, the worst thing that can happen is that this asshole might not get to go on TV every week and say something terrible Mm. and the only case this movie can make for him is he represents part of canada some people like him some people like him and the ones who drink beer not wine and he is nice to some kids not all kids and he and he supports the troops (laughs) and he supports the troops and he supports the police Mm -hmm. and at one point when somebody asks him for an autograph he gives the autograph Mm -hmm. and his wife seems nice so (laughs) those are that's the case for don Mm -hmm. cherry And it's also funny because this movie has all those moments that you would normally get in a biopic. Like if there were a biopic about John Lennon, for instance, there'd be a scene where um, somebody says, oh, you seen the new kid at school? I think his name is McCartney. And then, you know, as an audience member, you're supposed to like, oh, yeah, he's Uh going to meet Paul. And in this one, there's a scene where Don Cherry goes, oh, they're putting me up with a partner. I think his name is McLean. (laughs) And you're supposed to think, oh, man, the sparks are going to fly. 
But the stakes are so low. They're just two assholes on Canadian TV. <laughs> so, I don't know. Not a very good movie. It's, I mean, it's, it was just cripplingly boring. It was one of those things where um, there's only, like, what, two or three sets in the movie. And it you, makes you realize how small Dawn's world is. You, you feel like, like this is actually an episode of The Twilight Zone where there's only, like, 15 people left on Earth and they're just trapped in this nightmare. Like, you can't imagine anyone existing when Don Cherry's not in the room like, well, no other locations apart from, like, the one CBC studio, Maple Leaf Gardens, and the Cherry household. Nothing else exists. And then after his wife uh, dies, we cut back to Don Cherry in his house, watching neg- and he's watching negative coverage of him on TV. And, you know, this really is an insight into Don Cherry's life. What does he do? He goes on TV, then he goes home and watches himself on TV. And sometimes he goes to a local hockey rink so that he can yell at the kids for being prima donnas we see on him, ice. We see him, like, yell at a bunch of 13-year-olds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and for this, he is regarded as being, you know, one of the greatest Canadians. And it's funny because, like, I mean, I don't really know how he improves on the kind of, like, insecure, toxic, middle-aged, like, masculinity that was, like, the norm among, like, a certain kind of... You know, there were like nice hockey dads where I grew up, but I mean, I definitely, I definitely saw things like, you know, uh, dad jump the boards and like grab a ref by the scruff of his neck because, you know, his kid playing peewee got a penalty or something. I mean, I, Don Cherry is just that turned into like an on-screen persona. So I, I think I come by my aversion to hockey very honestly. I see. The thing is, I, Don Cherry didn't kill hockey for me. I still like hockey. Well, I I never particularly liked it. I but put, you you played. I, I didn't realize. I, yeah, this. I played it. You know, from I don't know, like grades. But not in not in authentic Canada like me. And no, I, play, I played city. it in the suburbs of of Toronto. Well, I, they still have lattes there. From like you know grade two to probably grade eight, I played hockey. So um, and then when I was a reporter at a rural newspaper. I probably reported on, I want to say, like, 100 uh, Junior B hockey games. Yeah, I'll grant that that must be kind of demoralizing. And what I know about hockey is that it's cold and that every <laughs> game is the same. They go from one end of the ice to the other end of the ice to the other to the other, and then occasionally somebody scores by accident. And what I really got reporting on these games is, in, in small-town Ontario, the arenas will be full of, you know middle-aged beer-gutted former hockey players who are watching these games with 17-year-old kids and then a fight will break out and these old guys are in the audience going kick his ass kick his ass and this is the culture that don cherry helps build because don cherry has a whole video series called rock'em sock'em hockey used to watch them it's been around since we were kids Mm -hmm. there are like 30 volumes of this thing and and every year he comes out with one that's like the greatest fights and the greatest and he he wears sunglasses and for some reason i really i never quite figured it out but somehow this octopus became part of the iconography of it so he's like reaching into a thing and he pulls out like an octopus oh, that he really? calls Oscar it's weird well and he's got his dog blue yeah. that, that's on the videos too and and it'll just and be... it, and it's played by a, a, another pooch in this yeah. in this film and it's basically they're basically snuff films they're just <laughs> collections of scenes of people getting hurt on the ice and it's him doing mystery science theater narration where he goes like oh a beauty pay into the boards <laughs> Darcy's one of those guys that makes you keep your head up and he lets you know he's around. He also knows when you dish it out, you gotta take it too, right Darcy? Darcy wasn't the only guy throwing his weight around this year, just watch. 
I hate that culture of hockey. Uh, it's true, but the the thing is, like, I want to a, a little bit defend the institution of hockey. I definitely, like I said, experienced a certain amount of that kind of thing growing up. I mean, even the pep talk that. Mm-hmm. Like where Cherry yells at those kids. Like I was once on the receiving end of one of those. I also think Walter Gretzky destroyed generations of fathers. <laughs> because Tom, Why? going back to where the the conversation started. Uh, the now I didn't fatherhood. Su- I didn't suffer this. My dad wasn't under any delusions about me. But but there are tons of kids out there whose fathers, you know, wished that they were in the NHL. And then they saw Walter Gretzky, who became a superstar for shepherding his son into the <laughs> NHL. And they said, well, this could be my second shot at glory. <laughs> so they were out there with their with their sons every morning at 6 a.m., getting them to play hockey, you know, dreaming that one day they their son may turn into Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> and then that when the kid inevitably did, that spoiled tons of father-son relationships. You laugh, but I've seen it. <laughs> I remember, for want of a better way of referring to this, like sort of progressive coaches i mean there were a few yeah, I had there, good there were there were there were people like there were people that i shout remember out to sandy who, ross my coach nice a good guy um i remember there were people that were actively working against that kind of toxic culture mm-hmm. um and and they were probably a minority but like small town hockey is like really important in this country and i don't and i actually think it can be like unfairly maligned like because of don cherry mm-hmm. and like i said i think he's more representative of affluent like suburban Canada mm. than than you know rural Canada. Fair enough. Yeah. Listen, like all sports, it has its uh, good <laughs> it's it, it, it's it's good qualities. I also don't like wearing the equipment, you know. Um, <laughs> but you know, despite the fact that he became so divisive and so toxic, and you know he's on TV every week railing against foreigners, he still <laughs> maintains a level of cachet to the extent where. You remember when George Strombolopoulos took over hosting duties on Hockey Night in Canada? I remember watching him having to do a press conference with Don Cherry where he like grovels next to Don Cherry. He's a like, big institution. like, oh, well, I don't, I don't want to disappoint you, Don. He's probably one of the most powerful kind of institutions in Canadian broadcasting, which is... But everybody knows I like tough guys, so I'm going to show you my all-time tough team, okay? So what Canadian TV did you watch when you were a kid? Well, apart from Coach's Corner, which I watched like every weekend... I it's like, you know, the Air Force. Oh, God, Air uh, Force. Yeah. We, we could do a whole episode on that. Air Force. <laughs> Actually, that would be good. Yeah, we, we should. Air Force was, um, I, I think it's still going. No, 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 it's it's off the air. They, they probably do a New Year's 20, special. 22 though, right? minutes is going. 22 yeah. minutes are going. Air Force was like a collection of sort of affable middle-aged comedians who did like kind of corny political comedy. It was it was the kind of show where like the politicians would come on yeah. and and do comedy with them. And then of course there was Red Green, oh, which, you know, is something that I know is an interest I know we share. Yeah, yeah. Uh, R- Red Green. Would duct tape forever be like off limits for this show? I, I could see us doing that for as like a bonus episode yeah, yeah. somewhere along the line. Red Green... What I loved most about Red Green was, you know, he's kind of like our our home improvement up yeah. here. But Red Green actually aired on PBS in the U.S. I didn't know that. Yeah, he has a big following in the U.S. He tours the U.S. Not in like... Didn't you meet him or you I did a phone him? interview with him once. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and he was very nice. Uh, but I just love that, like, the sensibility of Red Green and the, the kind of... Um, atmosphere of it is so foreign to americans that it literally goes on pbs that's incredible like, like, you know what's really good canadian tv is uh trailer park boards have you ever seen that i've seen a bit of it yeah. I, I think it's like i think it's like one of the funniest 
I think we, it's great. We have we have we've had kids in the hall. We've had yeah. SCTV. Uh, YTV is the zone. Have you seen the newsroom? Like not the Aaron Sorkin newsroom, the, the, the 90s one, because apparently that's good. Yeah, I've never yeah, watched I've, it. I've heard yeah. Twitch City is good. Mm-hmm. Some Canadian TV recommendations for you. I I would just say that there has been um, Canadian culture that I like. Yeah, absolutely. Including this show right here, Michael and Us. Homegrown Canadian content, folks. Happy Canada 150. Now watch this drive. I hurt myself today To see if I still feel I focus on the pain The only thing that's real and everybody knows the reason what it is. It's Pavel Burry last year in the seventh the game using blackmail saying I either get six million dollars or I don't play the seventh game. Now what kind of a guy is that? That's exactly what happened. He didn't play the seventh game. How do you know it happened? It happened. Everybody, and it's all over. Everything happened. They signed the guy, Pat Quinn, good Irish guy, would never do that. The owner says sign him because they got a new building coming up and they need a superstar. <laughs> need a super, they're not selling out this year. So you know what it is, well, we might as well just sit here and then how much time we, we got left? we got a couple of minutes for sure. We've got a couple of minutes. Now on, I think Ray's the right one. Of course he doesn't like the, the banging and the smash, and why would he? He's only this high. Yeah, but he can maybe relate to the eight-year-old that would love to play this game. Oh, eight-year-old, this is professional hockey we're talking about. Quit talking about eight-year-old and that. Why don't we show Sid the kid? What is this stuff on here? We're Hockey Night in Canada and we're talking about saving the world and all that stuff. Let's talk hockey. Well, would you yeah. be a little leery of hiring him a second time? Yeah, well, the So thing, he is in a, in a case of. Was it racism? No, it was well, because. It is. No, it isn't. It was, be- it, it was between him and the GM. That's why he didn't get it. It wasn't racism at all. And but, uh, let's never get into that again. I've right. lost the whole thing. No. <laughs> that left winger, uh, the oh. sky has fallen, Suzuki. He'd be happy he's with him. That was sickening last week, by the way. What? Uh, what is going junk. on with you? Fair shake in life. Go out and get your own fair shake in oh, life and work Don, for it. Don't give me that stuff. And you women are going to get mad at me out there. When you come to the games, keep your eyes on the puck. And I'm telling you, I've seen some awful smacks. And it's always a woman yapping away there. No, Look at the game. Lots of fans. What are you talking? Both genders get involved in talking about the game. I agree. I'm just trying to help Look them. Look at the puck, but don't blame women, men, or anybody else for uh, getting in the odd well, conversation. Uh, lives here? I didn't know. Yeah, he lives in Boston in the summer. No, he's rich now. No, you want to show him? Show him then. All sure. right, go ahead. Instead of the benches on the same side. But you were right. That's what that was part yeah, of the problem. Yeah, sure, I guess so. Sid would be pleased to make oh, this Oh, I guess he would. Yeah, sure. I got to show him because I show Cavalier and I show the rest of the guys, so I got to show him. Keep them all happy. Everybody happy. Oh, God. Yeah. It did nothing but praise Vancouver till it got sick me. I brought up all his trades, I brought up everything. All I've ever done, Ojek and all, is praise Vancouver Canucks. I never everybody ever come up to me and said, good job, Don. But let me say one thing wrong, and I'm gonna get punched in the head. If I could start again a million miles away. I would find 
away.